Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 38, in which my special guest will be the host of the Stick to Wrestling podcast and the tape trading legend, Mr. John McAdam, who I will be talking about more in just a moment. A little business to attend to first. I would like to draw your attention to the brand new edition of Inside the Ropes magazine, issue number 25, with a bloody and disgruntled CM Punk on the cover from the now infamous all-out AEW press scrum. Uh, the new issue, uh, of course, it's been available for a while now over in the UK. It is um, making its way over to North America and... Um, it has a few write-ups from me in there. They did the 100 greatest matches, uh, basically the 100 greatest uh, wrestling matches of the past decade, I believe is what it is. And I had the privilege of writing up a bunch of those entries. And they have um, they had the uh, previous installment in last month's issue. And now they have the second half of the top 100 matches of the past decade. And I got to write up a few of those. I also have an article coming up in the next issue of Inside the Ropes, which I am starting to work on now. It is a, going to be a two-part, two-issue piece breaking down all the classic pro wrestling territories of the territorial days, which is a subject that is near and dear uh, to my heart. And also now the subject of this hot new series on Vice TV, Tales from the Territories, which I've been enjoying. I hope you've been enjoying it, too. It's been very interesting. And I myself am going to be appearing on Vice very soon. Again, I want to make mention of that in the Vince McMahon documentary, The Nine Lives of Vince McMahon, that Vice TV put together. They did interview me for that. Uh, I, I have no idea if they're going to use any of it, but they did interview me. And uh, my understanding was it was originally supposed to be airing on the 18th, which would have been the day before this episode of Shut Up and Wrestle posts. And now it 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 has been postponed. I'm not sure when the new date uh, of of release is going to be. I'm not sure if WWE worked their magic to kill this documentary. I, I don't believe that's the case, but we will see. We'll see when it's going to air. We'll see if yours truly is going to be making his triumphant return to Vice TV. So stay tuned. Uh, a couple of other things to stay tuned about. Well, um, I do still have some copies available of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. Some autographed copies. If you'd like one, you can reach out to me at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com, or you can find me on Twitter. Brian R. Solomon is my handle there. And the last thing that I want to give you a sneak peek about, I'm not going to say a lot about it today because I don't really know enough yet, 
but I am now in the process of pitching and conceptualizing what is going to be my next book. It will be my sixth book overall, uh, my fourth book on the subject of professional wrestling. That's right. It will be a wrestling book. I can't reveal yet what the subject matter will be. I've tossed around a few ideas. Um, some ideas are biographical, similar to Blood and Fire, and some are non-biographical, but still wrestling related. But we are in talks to make it happen. And as soon as I know what the nature of the book is going to be and a little bit more information about it, I will let you guys know. But at this moment, I'd pr much prefer to get to the interview, which I did not long ago with Mr. John McAdam, a person that I have known, as we'll talk about on the show, uh, for many years, initially in his um, incarnation as the Internet's leading wrestling tape trader. There's a little story that I, I didn't mention on the conversation that we did, so I'll mention it here. My first interaction with John actually was back in the 90s, finding his tape trading website online, and I was in, in those days, and to, this, to a certain extent still today, but in those days I was really obsessed with the Jerry Lawler, Andy Kaufman um, angle from Memphis and learning all I could about that. So I was on the hunt for um, all, all the tapes and information I could find about Memphis wrestling uh, with Lawler and Kaufman and the David Letterman show and all that stuff. And I reached out to John back then, even on the phone and, and, and talked his ear off at like a complete mark, uh, trying to figure out if Lawler versus Kaufman was a work or a shoot. Uh, those were the days I was I was in college at the time, folks, not fully smartened up to the business, but I'm sure that John forgave me. And the best evidence of that is that he agreed to do this interview. We had a lot of fun and I hope you enjoy listening to it. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it is my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome somebody that I'm going to talk a little bit about because, and I've said it before on his own show, this is somebody who, even if he's not going to put himself over, I'm going to put him over as one of the legends, one, and I'm going to use the word legends, one of the legends of tape trading, which was so important for wrestling fans, especially in in the pre-internet age and the pre-YouTube age. We'll talk about all that, but, but this guy, if you were interested in finding old wrestling footage, if you were a fan that wanted to watch more than just what was on TV right then and there, you knew this guy. Um, I found him on the internet and, and I was able to begin my journey into wrestling history. Thanks to some of the tapes that I bought from him. He also has a podcast on the Arcadian Vanguard network, which I have been on called stick to wrestling, which we'll talk about. I am talking about the great man himself, John McAdam, a legend amongst tape traders. It's like being a legend <laughs> in my fifth grade North Attleboro <laughs> class, but Thank you for such a wonderful introduction, Brian, and thank you for having me on. You're welcome. You're welcome. And it's like I said, I knew you were going to be modest about it, so I'm the one that's going to boast about it because, you know, I don't think, I don't know for these spoiled young fans today, who, by the way, I'm not sure how many young wrestling fans listen to my show, probably none, but the spo the young fans of today, look, and even the old fans, we're so spoiled today. We, we have peacock we have youtube we have there's other streaming apps out there there's the jarrett parsons stuff there's like stuff you can find at at the press of a button so much wrestling history that we would have died for back in the day and so tape trading was such a big part of being 
you know, more than a casual wrestling fan in those days. Well, yeah, definitely. You know what? I, I want to say something. I, I am genuinely flattered, Brian, by what you said. I, I had people say that to me before, and I'm kind of like, yeah. One of my friends on Facebook was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm friends with John McAdam on Facebook. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, come on. But it, it means something to me, and it, it goes both ways. I mean, I was talking to uh, a friend, actually my my brother's girlfriend. I was talking about, you know, meeting uh, Virgil, the uh, Ted DiBiase's bodyguard, and talking about a story with him. And she's like, wait a minute. How did you get to meet Virgil? It's like, well, it's, it's no big deal. And I, I kind of look at it that way from both ways. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. And and it's just it's because I have that happen with people that used to read WWE magazine back in the day. And I'm always like, you know, it's not really a big deal. Like, I'm not really I'm I'm just a nobody. I just got my name in print because <laughs> we lived it every day. Right. Exactly. That's part of it, too. I thought nothing of it. So and I'm sure you thought, you know, this is just my job. Well, because what happened with me was in terms of finding you is. When I saw, I sort of discovered the whole like Arcadian Vanguard, you know, universe a few years ago. And that's how I think I, I, I got sort of reacquainted with what you were up to. And when I saw that, I said, oh, my God, John McAdam, like that was a name that was important to me. And I go, oh, like it took me a second. And I'm like, that's the guy that had all those the wrestling tapes. And that amazing, like, classic 1990s website with all the lists and the catalogs. And, like, let me tell you something. That website was, you know, a regular stop for me in those days of Internet version 1.0 in the 90s. Like, just to see what was available and, like, finding out about all these territories and things. It's, you can't, I can't overstate it because back then, I'm talking about, like, mid-90s, I guess, you know early 90s even i was very limited in my knowledge of wrestling outside of what was really available to me you know and so like for example i first discovered a lot about memphis from your stuff because i think i've i talked about this on your show about how i first came into contact with you because i was looking for footage of andy kaufman and jerry lawler yeah, and you know, going back even further, I'm a little bit older than you, Brian. I mean, I lived in a world where we got one hour of wrestling every single week on Channel 56 in Boston. It was on 11 in the morning, and if you missed it, you missed it. There, you know, we no one had a VCR, or at least no one I knew had a VCR. And then as time went on, we got cable, and there was just more and more wrestling, and then. I finally got a VCR in 1986, and it was funny to look back on. Um, I've told this story before, and I apologize if any of you have heard it uh, before, but one of my friends recorded Battle of the Belts, the first one, and he's like, hey, you know, do you want to borrow this? I'm like, no, I've already seen it. What do I want to <laughs> see that again for? But then I started thinking about it, and I'm like, okay, if I record some of the wrestling that's on now, like some of the good stuff on WTBS, some of the good stuff that the WWF put out, whatever. In 10 years, I might enjoy it again by, by watching it again. And that's all I intended it to be at first. And then um, I started, I actually one day in 1986, this is embarrassing. <laughs> I went to the, I, I got a bunch of names out of magazines, right? Like people who would write a letter to Pro Wrestling Illustrated. <laughs> I would go to the library and I would try to find this person in the phone book. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That is great. 
I like, you know, oh, this person lives in Queens. Here's the Queens phone book. Oh, there's his address. And I would write to him. I would say, look, you know, this is the wrestling I get up here. Would you would you be interested in making a trade? And I heard back from one person out of all the handwritten letters I wrote. And this person got back to me. I it was the very end of 1986. I was coming home from a Christmas party at like 3.30 in the morning. The whole thing was ridiculous. And there was a stack of Wrestling Observer newsletters that have been sent to me. And I mean, talk about opening up a whole new world, not only of wrestling knowledge, but hey, there are people who want to trade tapes. And that's how it all got started for me. I didn't uh, actually discover the Observer. I mean, I knew about it, but I didn't start reading it actually until i started working for wwe um and it was because like there were other people in the office who read it obviously everybody knows and i think at one point it had whoever was the contact person because what usually would happen there is because they didn't want to have a lot of names of wwe people like on dave's subscriber list you know yeah. so like one person would have the subscription who was like an obscure person and then he'd make like a bajillion copies and distribute it all around the tower. And I'm sorry, Dave, but uh, that was me for a little while. <laughs> it became me. So that's when I started reading it, like about 2000, late 2000, maybe. And I would make copies for God, uh, Howard Finkel, Kevin Kelly, Tom Pritchard, like just all over. And just like I'd be like the mailroom guy just all over the building, just handing them out. Uh, but that again, that was like another big eye opener for sure. Now, Brian, let me ask you this. Without naming names or being specific with people, what was the attitude in the tower towards Dave Meltzer in general? Like, you know, did they hate him? Did they respect his knowledge? What was it like? It was kind of schizophrenic, honestly, because like, first of all, like you'd hear from Vince, you'd hear like you'd get a feeling that it was like this love hate thing where. He hated the fact that he was like on his every move, obviously, and reporting all these things he didn't want known. But he also, I think, had this weird kind of respect for him. Like he respected what he did. It's hard to describe. Like he saw him as an adversary, but like a respected adversary, almost in the way that the president of the United States, at least when it's a mentally stable president. Uh, when the president of the United States looks at the press, you know, you know what I mean? It's like I do. They're not their favorite people. They're not going to like have them over for dinner. They're kind of a pain in the ass, but they respect what they do and they realize that it's valuable. And there was some of that. But, you know, it also depended on the person. It depended on the day. Like, like I said, some of those people, they read it. And it was very and they would acknowledge it was very important, like Howard and Dr. Tom and people like that. But I don't think they would have publicly said to that, you know, they you know what I mean? Like they 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 understood its importance, but they weren't going to advertise that they were reading it. And um, I remember one time because we used to also distribute it around the department. I was in the publications department and we worked for Shane McMahon for a time directly. And I remember him coming into the office one day and seeing it out. And he literally said to us, he pointed to it and he goes, what's this doing here? This is sacrilege. He, he was sacrilege. Like, sacrilege. He used the word <laughs> sacrilege. He did. He said, this is sacrilege. And we, you know, we were very comfortable with Shane. We, you know, he was just our, our boss. And we said something to him to the effect of like, hey, we're just trying to keep up with the industry. Like we're in the industry. 
We're trying to keep up with what's going on. But from his point of view, it was personal because think about it. This was a publication that was, you know, revealing dark, dirty secrets about his family, his dad, his mom, his like, you know. And so for him, it was a little different. I'm sure he probably was getting an earful from Vince about it. So from then on, we sort of were a little bit more discreet about it. But, you know, it was like a necessary thing for a lot of us. We wanted to know what was going on in the business. It was the same thing. Like we used to watch tapes of TNA in the office and there were other people that did that. And this was back when TNA was like a viable number two competitor, like a Mm -hmm. distant, a distant number two, but they were number two. And there were other people that used to do it. If you would walk into some of the offices on the top floor, there were people that had it on, but the difference is they had small offices with doors that they could close. We, we were all the way out in the open in cubicles, so we would have like a community TV, and sometimes it would be on. And again, Shane would be like, why the hell are we watching this in here? <laughs> and we'd have to say to him again, like, we're trying to see what the other guys are doing. Like, we don't want to have our heads in the sand, you know? So it was like this weird uh, dual personality attitude towards some of these things. I, I think you know. I've heard good, good things about Shane McMahon. I hear he's a really nice guy. He I is, hear he's he really is. smart. Well, but to me, not wanting TNA, I would want to know every single move TNA is making. I want to watch watch every episode. I want to analyze every episode. You know, I was talking with not. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to name drop. In 1989, I was talking with Ric Flair who was booked, no, it was 90. He was booking the NWA. I was just hanging out casually with him. And I mentioned something that the WWF was doing and he had no idea. He didn't watch WWF. And to me, if you're booking the other co- a company, you better know what the WWF's doing. You better be an expert on the right. WWF. And, you know, Rick had no clue. Dusty had no clue in 88. And, you know, to me, that's ridiculous. You want to, and I know Vince McMahon, watched all the NWA pay-per-views because, you know, that's the smart thing to do. So why, like you said, why bury your head in the sand? Right. That's astonishing to me. I mean, this is your industry and that may be part of the reason why they, they lost honestly, because I mean, with the whole Vince thing, the way I understood it was, you know, Vince, as we all know, was an extremely, extremely busy guy. He barely slept. All he, all he did was work. And I don't I think what he did was he had people who watched everything and then reported to him the most important things that they wanted him to see. Like, like I know Howard was one of those people where it was like if it was either, oh, my God, you got to see what they're doing over there. You take a look at this, that kind of thing. Or, hey, they have a guy over there that's really good and we should try to get him. They would they would show him things. I don't know if he was watching everything, but he was but he had trusted people who would show him the important things. But it's weird to me that in Crockett, they wouldn't be doing that. I mean, I remember hearing on one of the it might have even been on one of your shows or maybe it was on one of Brian's shows. Somebody talking about how Lance Russell, because Memphis was obviously one of the hottest territories covered in the observer how how they hated it and it was again considered sacrilegious in memphis and all this stuff and how could you read it but lance russell was the only person who understood it because he came from you know a broadcasting background he came from an entertainment and news background and he understood the value of having a trade publication so like he actually had a really good relationship with Meltzer, and he got it more than the the pure wrestling people did 
You know, I uh, an analogy that has been used with me when we're talking about the observer is like, of course, the observer is in a dressing room, just like the sporting news is in the locker room of a, a baseball team. Right. But they are really different industries. And wrestling was very underground, very hidden. I mean, it was a complete getting the observer at the end of 1986 to me, I mean, it just opened up a whole new world, like a whole new understanding of how the game was played. And no, you know, there are some people you can put every issue of the observer, every issue of the torch, et cetera, in front of them. And the light is still never going to go on. Let's face it. It didn't go on right away for me, but it eventually went on. That's what I get into now with people who, you know, look, I, I'm somebody who will always, defend the value of Meltzer and the observer and what he has done i think it's irreplaceable i, I think he's he's a treasure to the business and there's not going to be anything like it at, after he's done doing it and and especially going back to the beginning it was something pre-internet that was so needed in in the business and no one had ever really tried to do it at that level i think what happens today with a lot of younger fans and people that follow the business is they mainly only know him as somebody online. They know him as the the guy on Twitter, you know, who's like spoiling your TV show every week. So like so many of the criticisms that I think get leveled at him um, that I read are clearly from people who do not read The Observer and have no idea what he actually does. They're just completely clueless as to what it is that he actually does, because if they did read it, they would not be saying the things that they say. Agreed entirely. You know, um, it, it's been a long time, but I remember going to conventions and get togethers and whatever, and you'd be in the same room with with Dave Meltzer and like Wade Keller, Harry White, etc. And I would always come home so much more enlightened, so much more informed, knowing things that, you know, one of my favorite expressions is you don't know what you don't know. Like, I had so many of those anytime I got together with those guys because, you know, they knew everything. They had such a tremendous perspective and you just sit under that learning tree. It still happens now. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been a wrestling fan for 35 years. I've been somebody like studying wrestling history for at least 30 years. I've been reading the observer for over 20 years and I still uh, learn things, especially when I read it that I didn't know perspectives, pieces of history, attitudes, things that were going on. I'm still absorbing stuff. Um, so yeah, it, it does scare me what's going to happen when, when he's not doing it anymore, because, you know, it's not just covering the business today. It's the history and the perspective that he has as a historian. You know, there's a lot of wrestling historians that I respect a lot. You know, uh, Tim Hornbaker is, is, is great. Steve Yoey is great. Meltzer is one of the only people who he has an all-encompassing historical view of wrestling. Like he can talk to you about what's happening right now, and he could talk to you about the 1880s and and be completely on top of the subject and know what he's talking about and have the most balanced perspective about virtually any historical period, which is incredible. You know, a friend of mine, Max Levy, and I for about 10 years 
were wondering about WWF 1979. Okay, this is this is how detailed we are. The, <laughs> WWF had a very weird 1979 Madison Square Garden where a Pat Patterson got four title matches against Bob Backlund. Yeah. And B, they brought Swede Hansen in for a title shot against Bob Backlund. Now, Swede Hansen was beyond washed up. He was a big star in the 60s, but he was wrestling the bottom of the card in the Carolinas and they brought him up. So we're asking ourselves, okay, why four matches for Patterson? Why Swede Hansen? And in the Roddy Piper obituary, Dave Meltzer just casually throws out there that Roddy Piper was supposed to be out there for two title matches against Backland, and they wound up sending him home. It's like this this mystery that I've been delving into for since I was a kid. Dave's just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, here. Yep. I always just assumed it was because Swede was just so raw boned that, it, you know, Vince had a book it. Much like my <laughs> podcast, a wicked good and raw bone podcast. Uh, stick to wrestling we used to love that there was a guy you know in my department there were tons of wrestling fans which you couldn't say about every department there and there was a guy i've had him on i had him on the show a few weeks ago aaron feigenbaum he wrote under the name aaron williams and he was obsessed with sweet hansen because he had grown up watching the wwf in the 70s and he would constantly call everybody raw boned because of that. <laughs> we actually looked up the word. This is hilarious. We looked up the word raw bone, and it's weird because I don't know where Vince got it from, but the word is not a complimentary word. Like he used it to mean like he's really tough and rugged, I think. But what the word really means is like sickly and 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 not in good shape, like like kind of wasting away, raw boned. So it's weird. It's almost like Vince McMahon himself changed the meaning of that word. <laughs> Vince McMahon has control over the English language, ladies and gentlemen. Baron McHale Seclune was also raw boned at times. He was. I got to talk to him briefly. Um, I, oh, nice. Yeah, I was doing um, the first book I did for WWE was W. Well, that I ever did was for them. It was called WWE Legends. And the idea Which I for own. Oh, wow. Thank you. Well, I don't need to tell you what the idea is. Maybe I'll tell the listeners. But the idea is I wanted to do a book covering the legends of the pre-national era of WWE, like the pre-Hogan, pre-WrestleMania, the people that they didn't really talk about a lot, especially back then. Now it's a little more that they, they acknowledge that more. But back then it was like nothing happened before Hulk Hogan. So I wanted to do this book. And so Baron Mikel Cicluna was one of the people. And I tracked him down. His name was Mike Valentino, and he lived um, – I forget where he lived. It wasn't that – it was in the Northeast somewhere. Somewhere and in Jersey. I, I got his number. I think someone in the office still had his number, to be honest with you, somewhere. I think it was probably because he had been inducted into the Hall of Fame in the 90s, so there were people in touch with him. I just called him up at home, and we talked for about an hour. We talked about Bruno. We talked about – his whole career tag teaming, how how he kind of went from being a main event heel to being, you know, kind of I don't I didn't call him a jobber, but you know what I mean? Like kind of like an enhancement no, guy. Yeah. And he totally acknowledged it. He even said that he was proud of it. He was very proud of it, he told me, because he had proven himself to the office. Like he had been he had been a draw as a heel. He had been a successful worker for them. He had he had made money for them and they trusted him and trusted his work so much. They kept him around and they wanted him to work with the younger guys and the new stars and help put them over. And he saw that as a compliment. You know, one thing I, I always say about wrestlers, you always hear, you know, 
oh, this guy could have been a bigger star, but he liked to stay close to home. And when I was younger, I would be like, yeah, right. He just mm-hmm. didn't have the talent. But there really were some guys, and, and Baron Mikel Cicluna fits this, where, you know what? I want to buy a house. I want to be a pro wrestler for a job. I don't want to be in Atlanta for nine months and then move to the mid-Atlantic territory for nine months. Like, you know, I'm good doing what I'm doing. I'm making money, and I have a stable lifestyle. Like, I think as I get older, I appreciate that more. <laughs> I do, too. It is an older perspective. It's like, you know, what they say in wrestling from a kayfabe perspective, and I really think that this is kind of a work, but people will always say, well, it's everybody's goal to become a world champion and a top star. And if that's not what you're in it for, then why are you in this business and all that stuff? I really think that's kind of a work because honestly, the goal should be, and the goal was for a lot of guys. I don't know if it still is. I just want to be able to make a living. I want to be able to have this be my only job because I enjoy doing this. I want to still have a family, have a home. I want to be able to support myself. If I can do that by being, you know, what they used to call a carpenter, then great. That's what I'll do. I mean, there were a lot of guys that had that attitude and there's nothing wrong with that. They looked at it as a job. And I think the business in those days, and John, you know, this was, there were so many places to work and there was so much more money in it to be made by more people that you had so many wrestlers, lots of wrestlers who made good livings, who were full-time pro wrestlers with a comfortable middle-class living, who weren't even well-known, who fans didn't even know who they were, but they were able to just get enough work that this was their job. And that's something you don't really see so much anymore. No, you don't. Um, I mean, the wrestling business has changed dramatically. Um, I mean, I've been... Because... Long story short, the UAWF convention where I met everybody from the 80s. I'm going to be talking about that in a couple of days. And I've just been, you know, reminiscing about that a little bit, how much the wrestling business has changed since then. And by 88, the business had changed so much since 78. I mean, it's it's really so liquid. It, It changes so much. And, you know, I remember talking to Dave Meltzer. We're back talking about Dave again somehow. That's okay. In ni- 1992, <laughs> I, I talked to him right after Bill Watts had been hired, and I was thrilled. I'm like, okay, they finally have the answer. Bill Watts is the answer. Pretty soon, the NWA will be like, you know, Mid South Wrestling in '84 and '85. And Dave's like, nope, he hasn't watched. He hasn't watched any wrestling in five years since he sold UWF, and he's completely out of touch. And I was just like, I, I was blown away i was floored i'm like no this is bill watts we're talking about well guess who was right it was dave yeah but the point is the business changes so quickly that in five years watts had completely lost the plot right and the funny thing for me like i always tell people i have to always separate what is my own personal taste to what is going to be I know good for the actual business. Very important. It's important. And I also got that attitude because, you know, I worked inside the business in a, in a small capacity. I, I I worked for the biggest company that there ever was. And, and I learned that attitude of like, you can be a fan, you could enjoy things, but you have to sometimes understand that what you enjoy, you probably shouldn't do it sometimes because it's not going to make a lot of money. And that was a big case for me of that Watts era WCW. Like, Personally, I loved it. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I really did. But at the time, I remember going, I don't think this is really going to play. Like, this is not 
you know, something that's going to appeal, let's say, to people that watch WWF. That's for sure. If they're trying to compete with the WWF, like I could acknowledge that it wasn't going to work and it didn't work. It was like some of their worst, you know, months or whatever it was, not even years. But for me personally, my own taste, I, I was enjoying it. You know, I always say to people like they are. I'm going to bring up a, a controversial name, Vince Russo. Okay, Vince Russo changed the WWF. You know, with the green light from Vince McMahon, obviously, it was a completely different product in like eight, uh, 95, 96. And then they brought on the Attitude Era, and Raw was insane every Monday night. And he was doing stuff that was just way outside of the boundaries. You know, he'd watch Springer and he'd bring an idea from that into pro wrestling. And there were people who were so offended. And it's like, but you don't understand. It doesn't matter if I like it. It doesn't matter if you like it. Right. This is what's drawing ratings. What the WWF was doing in, in 94, 95, you know, no one was watching. And they were performing in front of empty buildings. The, the, the buy rates were down. And now people are watching. So... You, we all like to have our own opinion, but at the end of the day, if you're running a business, you have to do what works. And what he brought to the table worked, you know, and like I said, a lot of people, well, I liked it better in 94, 95. Okay, but no one else was watching. Right. And and I'm one of those people. Like, And I acknowledge that completely, especially looking back on it now. Like the, the Russo era WWF was the flip side of the Watts era WCW for me, where it's like at the time. I was really put off by a lot of that stuff because I'd been watching wrestling for over a decade and, you know, there were things I liked. I was set in my ways and there were things I enjoyed about it and he was just blowing it up. Right. So there were things that really disturbed me, like some of the but but you look back on it now and these are like classic moments, but like some of the more violent things they were doing with Austin, like where he's holding McMahon at gunpoint. And, you know, it turns out to be a trick gun and a lot of the, the sex stuff that they were injecting in the show where I started getting uncomfortable watching it with my family, which was a first, I remember being like, Ooh, this is making me feel a little dirty. Like, like this is not really the wrestling that I grew up watching, but it worked and you look back on it now and you go like absolutely they 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 were right to do that or at least you understand why they did it because those were their hottest years i mean austin for the short period of time that he was he was the hottest draw probably they ever had for that like 98 99 2000 2001 you know there was no one that's ever been as hot as he was now the flip side was all that hot shotting they did, which, you know, there was a reason nobody ever booked that way before. I mean, it's not like it's not like he was the first person, I think, to ever think about doing stuff like that. But I think the attitude always was, if we do all this shit, then what are we going to do after it? Like, people are going to get sick of this. And then we were burnt out. We've turned everybody 12 different times. We've switched the title, you know, 100 times a year. We've had all these outrageous angles. Now what do we do? And I feel like that's what happened after the Attitude Era ended, where it was like, well, where do we go from here? My own take is that the WWF went down in 2001. Um, it, it's because they won the war. And yeah. the old, first of all, the old expression, you're always running faster when someone's chasing you. That's number one. But number two, I really feel like in 2001, since there was no competition and they were getting guaranteed TV dollars, the WWF started uh, booking in a way, uh, it, frankly, to make it a vanity project for Triple H and Stephanie McMahon. I mean, absolutely. 
they wanted to make Stephanie a celebrity and everything else got pushed out of the way. And I think that's why the product went down. I, I know that's a, a, a kind of a big accusation to make, but that, that was my observation. In the office at the time, a lot of us used to describe it as, you know, they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle or they're trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And and that was the problem. It's like now they're trying to rein it in a little bit in some ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's hard to do that because in a lot of ways, even though the Attitude Era is long over, I don't think people realize how much we're still living in the shadow of that time. Like there's still things and there always have been all through the 2000s and the 2010s, things that the the the, the product in general way more edgy than it was before the attitude era there are things they do now where you know they talk about the pg era and all this stuff but there's things they do that they would have never dared to do on tv before the attitude era so so the influence is still felt to this day yeah i you know i have always i've never met vince mcmahon i don't really know anything about vince mcmahon that you know everybody else doesn't know but i really believe that he got dragged kicking and screaming into the attitude era i think that the wwf that he liked that he envisioned was hulk hogan and zeus against uh it should be hulk hogan and brutus beefcake now think about a guy named brutus beefcake against randy savage zeus and sherry dressed the way she was he wanted i think he wanted a kid show and the only reason he changed to something extremely different was because wcw was really leaning into him and he was looking at hey maybe a year or two from now i might be out of business or I might have to sell this thing. He was very angry and very frustrated. This was right before I got there. So I knew a lot of people that were around and they would tell me stories. Like he was very angry and frustrated. There were a couple of things that happened. You know, first of all, a lot of the, the attitudes of the attitude era or like the philosophies behind the booking, the cynical kind of things, they were things that appealed. I'm going to get very psychological here for a second. All right. They were things that appealed to aspects of Vince's real life personality. You know, he could be a vengeful person. He could be a lustful person. He was the kind of guy that believed that nice guys finished last and, and believed, you know, that, that, that a pure good guy hero was a lot of BS, you know, but he was willing to sell all that stuff to his viewers. So like, the, the attitude behind it appealed to him. He just never thought that there was money in it and that you could actually present a product that way at all. He just thought it was it was insane. But he, like I said, he got very angry. He got very uh, desperate. I remember hearing a story in 97. Now, you know about this when they did they did this horrible rating. Everybody talks about it. Nowadays, it would be like just another week. But but back then, I think they did like a, it was below a 2.0 or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was like uh, early 97. It was like the the bottom, like as low as their ratings got. And and WCW was on fire, of course, with the NWO. This was right, I think, was this right after, like two weeks after the Royal Rumble? Yeah, I think so. I think it was like February 97. Yeah. Okay. So, the, so this is the story I heard. I've never told this story on here before, so this is a first. But uh, I heard a story where he... He was so furious. He didn't know what to do. Like he he was just spitting mad and he called everybody into a meeting. And this also is partly what led to, you know, Vince Russo getting brought on board because he was desperate for ideas. And I remember hearing about how he was talking about getting edgier and he wanted to push the envelope because also 
people forget WCW was doing that before him. I mean, they were doing that already, you know, with the NWO stuff. And he was talking about getting edgier. And apparently the story was he wanted to blow up the logo because they still had the block logo. He he thought it was like the epitome of the corniness and the goofiness of what was getting them killed. And he took the logo in front of everybody. This is like this legendary moment. I, I don't know if it was on a whiteboard or something like that. And he drew angrily, like scratched out, scribbled out a WWF logo in like chicken scratch, which wound up becoming the scratch logo. But underneath the scratchy logo, he drew like a giant pair of balls. Okay. (laughs) Now he drew a giant pair of balls and the creative people, the creative services people were there. Because he was like, I want to, I want to change the whole logo. I want to, I want to, I want to, you know, an edgy logo. And they looked at it and they were like, okay, Vince, we love the scratchy logo. We're going to go that route. We're going to take the classic logo and make it all scratchy and, you know, angry looking. We can't do the balls, obviously. So what we're going to do is, so the balls underneath, I'm sorry, this is a family podcast for getting so explicit this week, listeners. But the balls that were hanging from the WWF turned into that little boomerang line that was underneath. You know, remember when they had the scratch logo and they had that almost looked like the the like Nike kind of boomerang underneath uh-huh. it? That was originally a pair of balls that Vince drew. So you heard it here first. Wow. I, I had <laughs> never heard that story. Yeah. And. I, I remember them changing the logo and me being like, you know what? I, I hadn't even noticed before, but I was like that old logo was so 80s. It was so outdated. I was I was just used to it. But, you know, with a fresh set of eyes, I could see, you know, yeah, once it was changed, I'm like, yeah, they needed to get to get rid of that. And I remember in the in the new generation years, you know, they took it and they just kind of tilted it on its side. Do you remember that? Like the, they were trying to just be kind of silly with it. They just like tilted it over. And that really wasn't enough of a change, right? You know, Vince was just like, we're just going to blow up the whole thing. But that's what also got him in trouble with the World Wildlife Fund, too, because they part of their agreement from back in the 80s was you have to get our permission if you ever change the logo. And he didn't get their permission. And that is what wound up leading to them getting dragged back into court, actually. I was not aware of that, that that was all over a logo. I naturally, I just assumed that the WWF wrestling got so big, it finally got their attention. But I guess that's not what happened. But that's part of it, too. Actually, they were they, they gave them a dispensation. Like, I think it was in 83 where they were like, you know, they allowed them under certain provisions to use it. That was actually one of the reasons why Vince came up with the original block logo, because it gave him a way to not have to use the letters WWF together. He could just use the logo and it would stand for those letters. But they made all these provisions with him and then they got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it got to the point where they started, from what I heard, like they started getting very annoyed because the company got so big, the WWF wrestling, that wherever the World Wildlife Fund went, they kept having to hear from everybody jokes like, oh, where are the wrestlers? (laughs) And they got, and they really were getting sick of it. And they were waiting for Vince to screw up and break some of the provisions. And he started and he and he broke them. He he broke them all. Like they said, when you come to Europe on tour, you can't use the name WWF at all, which they completely ignored. Right. And there was that. And so there were all these rules they had, which which Vince ignored. And that wound up, you know, getting them to be forced to change the name. 
you know, it's funny. The uh, 25th anniversary of the Montreal Screwjob is coming up, and we're not going to talk about that. Except, oh, no. Vince, you know, he has this contract with Bret Hart where Bret has, you know, reasonable creative control. And Vince just, just wanted to do everything his way anyway. And that's just, you know, how the guy is. And, and let's face it, he's been successful doing what he does. Like, you know, he'll make an agreement and yeah, screw the agreement. I don't want to do it anymore. Brett, I've decided to breach your contract. Yeah. Right. He he does. He always had the attitude of like he cannot stand being told what to do or how to do it. He's got to do it his way. And that's why, you know, and we, we even saw it recently. I, I, I don't like to talk too much about current stuff, but we saw it with the pandemic where everything was locked down, sport, even, including sports. And he was just like, screw it. We're going to build a whole building with monitors and we're still going to do the show with remote fans like you know he worked out a deal with the state of florida like all these rules were bent and broken and twisted just so that he would not have to be told how to run his company like that's a very important thing for him no one not even the government in his mind can tell him how to run his company or or his what was his company anyway yeah, I mean, he just finds this one state, Florida, that's willing to play along with him. And if it wasn't Florida, it would have been some other state. That was quite the crazy era where you have wrestling going on and there's this wall of, of video with, you know, about 100 fa uh, fans on it on Zoom. It was crazy. The novelty was interesting. I remember the first couple of times they did it. Even my wife, who who is forced into watching with me, was like, wow, that looks really cool. And it did. It was cool. But it got old fast and it wound up. It, it just emphasized um, the canned nature of wrestling when there's no fans there and you have uh, wrestlers playing to a crowd that isn't there because they don't know enough about improvising to be able to change up their act unless the agents are telling them that to do that. I don't know. But it, it just made everything look very, very canned. And that was, I'm sure, something that they couldn't wait to to put behind them. I mean, I remember the first couple of shows where they weren't piping in noise and it looked <laughs> like a play. It literally looked like a play. It became almost uh, there were some viral videos going around where people that didn't even follow wrestling were just like, take a look at this. This is so bizarre. It's pro wrestling without fans. And, and the clips were being like shared all over Twitter and other places just because of how weird it looked. It's almost like um, there's a scene in the movie Amadeus about Mozart where the, the emperor of Austria is like forcing him to take a scene out of his opera. So in order to like be passive aggressive, he takes the music out, but he doesn't cut the scene. So they play the scene where they're dancing and doing everything. And but there's no music at all, just to emphasize how completely ridiculous, it, you know, it looks without music. And that's kind of like what it looked like. It was weird, too. I mean, watching baseball in 2020 and at first there's no fans, and no noise. So all you're hearing is what's on the field, which I thought was really cool. And then they started piping in noise. Yuck. Right. Like that's different. I mean, you know, baseball is an actual sport. Wrestling is not. And so the crowd is an integral part of the wrestling product. Like you need that interaction. You need the the heat. You need the reactions with sports. And in some way, it, it shows you how much sports today is viewed as entertainment. I mean, you know, you shouldn't really it shouldn't really matter whether there's a crowd there or not. If you're watching a football game or a baseball game or anything else, it's it's the sport that counts. But 
but I think these days sports and entertainment get conflated so much more than in the past. Sure. Definitely. I mean, it, it, you know, first of all, that was my second false equivalency between baseball and wrestling. We're only like 45 minutes into this, um, but it's okay. For, Brian, let me ask you, what got you into wrestling? What got you into like, what made you into a wrestling fan? Like, what was that magic moment in your life? That's hilarious. Cause I was just going to ask you that. So if I answer Mine's that embarrassing, well, if I answer it, then you have to answer it. So I, and I I've, I've mentioned it here and there before, but my answer is kind of boring because, you know, there's two different levels to this. Like you have an I had an awareness of wrestling uh, of what it was for years before I became a fan. Maybe you did, too. Like I knew people that watched it. I, I had family members. You know, I, I knew what it was. I just wasn't into it. Um, not even the whole WrestleMania thing when it started in 85. I remember all the kids at school talking about it. I still wasn't into it. I remember hearing all the names. but. What got me into it was Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant, which I think did that. That happened for a lot of people my age. I think there's like a whole generation. That's why I say it's like it's such a boring answer. But it was watching Andre turning on Hogan on Piper's Pit where with Bobby Heenan and Jesse Ventura and he grabs the crucifix and pushes Hogan down and Piper's helping him up like it was so dramatic. I'm I'm 12 years old and it, it and it like changed my life. And it's funny how I think your brain just gets hardwired when you're that age. There's certain things that will stay with you because I will tell you this, and this is kind of weird and embarrassing, but I will watch that now and I've put it on and to show other people that are adults like me. I'm 47 years old. And I'm like, hey, I gotta show you this thing. This is what made me a wrestling fan. And I will get goosebumps and almost get emotional watching it because I get the same feeling I got when I was 12 years old, just feeling this gut punch of Hogan being betrayed by this lifelong friend. And people are like, Brian, are you okay? Like, <laughs> this is just wrestling. What the hell is wrong with you? But it's like wired into my brain from 12 years old. I mean, well, a couple of things I re I knew Andre was turning. I, you know, not from the observer or anything like that. You just watch, watch the sport for long enough. And you're like, okay, WrestleMania is coming up. And Andre has been kind of weird the past year. And but I didn't see, I didn't see any of that. So this was like, right. you know, that I had just started, like I, I literally turned the TV on because it used to be on Saturday morning in New York. So all the cartoons were on. I flipped through it and it was at that moment. So I didn't know any lead up. All oh, I knew wow. was that I turned it on and I was like, what the hell is this? I knew who the people were. I knew who Andre the Giant was. I knew who Hulk Hogan was, of course. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is like serious stuff. <laughs> and it got me hooked. You missed the best part. It was like the week before, I want to say, when Jesse Ventura compared the trophies that had been given to Hulk Hogan <laughs> and Andre the Giant. First of all, Andre had a littler trophy, according to Jesse. And number two, Hogan's Hogan's trophy felt like solid gold, whereas Andre's felt like rotten old lead. I thought I was going to die. It felt like <laughs> rotten old lead. I didn't but, see. I saw that later. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even though I knew it was coming and I was 21 years old when it happened, I was that was a jolt. Like, look what Andre just did. He's standing next to Heenan. Wow. Right. And Heenan's gloating. And and then you have and Hogan's like 
begging him, you know, that it's not true and all this kind of thing. And it's like so it's like, corny. It's it is it is. But when you're a kid, it's like grand theater. The other thing was the <laughs> the contract signing with Jack Tunney. Oh my god, where they're like burning a hole through each other across the table. And and Hogan is just like sign it if you're gonna sign it, and I'm just like this. This is like Shakespeare for me, you know. <laughs> Andre's pointing at him and speaking in French. Speak right. English to me, brother. Right, that's right. You speak <laughs> English, you know. And Heenan is still gloating. And I'll never forget the thing with Piper. It was like this little thing, but I talk about the Piper's pit with other people my age, and they bring up the same thing when 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 the heels walk out, and it's just Hogan and Piper, and it's almost like Hogan's down on the ground and Piper's holding him. It's almost like the Pieta or something with, with the with Christ and the Virgin Mary. And, he, <laughs> and he's looking down at him and he goes, you're bleeding. And he looks at, cause like Hogan's chest is bleeding from where Andre, you know, grabbed the crucifix. And he just goes, you're bleeding. It's like such a, such a little moment that yeah. lives in your mind forever. I, because, I you know, because you know what? I'm sorry to interrupt, but you know no, what gave ahead. it you know what gave it extra depth was I knew this, but even though I wasn't a fan, but I knew that Piper and Hogan had been mortal enemies. Mortal enemies. They were like Batman and the Joker. And now here you have Piper who's now turned to the good side, and now he's like Hogan's one friend and ally in this scene of of treachery. It just <laughs> added like a whole other level to it. I and there was another great moment from that feud. It was right after Andre had lost at WrestleMania three, and they're getting on the cart, Andre and, and Heenan. And if, if you have Peacock and you want to go back and watch this, Heenan does such an amazing job of just like it, it just hits him that he's been defeated, that he just took his best shot at Hulk Hogan and he lost. Like he looked like a, a beaten man, and he just did a great job selling that. Yeah, that that was the genius of Heenan. Like he really got the emotion of it. I think one of the things that made him always so good was he had been a fan as a kid and he came into the business in an era when a lot of the guys really hadn't been wrestling fans. You know, they were just carnies or they came from other sports or they maybe they maybe sort of just looked at it as a con or or a hustle. And with Heenan, it was something that he loved from from even just as a fan watching at home. And I think that gave him an advantage. It made him like understand the psychology of it and and taking it seriously. Like he's standing, I know what you're talking about. He's in the little mini ring and he's holding his head in his hand and he's not even moving. And there's garbage raining down on them. (laughs) It's like the ultimate humiliation. And this little ring is like rolling to the back with just, he is completely and utterly defeated and humiliated it's the perfect way for a heel to go out you know it really is i mean it was you know just him not out loud but to himself admitting defeat that you know i took my best shot at hogan and i lost right you know know what the interesting thing is um i love you know i'm a big comic book fan too and i actually have a book my next book is about comic books but Comic books and wrestling, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but one of the similarities is that the story never ends. And sometimes, especially if you're a new fan, that's a little jarring because, like, there's a reason in comics that the heroes never kill the villains, right? Because the stories have to keep going and you need the villain to come back. 
So no matter how perfect the ending is, it's not over. It's never over. There's always something that's going to happen. And that's like how wrestling is because now here I am. I'm 12 years old. I'm watching this perfect storyline unfold. It feels like that's the end. That's not even close to the end. It's just the beginning of of what was going to be happening with then DiBiase coming in and and then Andre actually getting the belt, but then he's not really the champion. There were all these things that happened after it that as a new fan, I totally didn't expect. I thought like, okay, that's the end of the story. Now there's going to be a new story. I I didn't I didn't know like, oh, this is wrestling. Nothing ever really ends. <laughs> I never looked at it that way, but 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 that's so true. That's a great analogy. Wrestling and comic books. I got into comic books for a little while when I was a kid. I picked up like the Batman comic book, and it is like wrestling. Like I come in at the middle of a never-ending story. <laughs> like you know, I I picked it up, and this whole thing had its own history, but. That one little comic book, like, you know, even though I'm in the middle of the story, I got into it, which same thing with wrestling. And I remember thinking just to quickly take it to comics for a second, because it relates. I was one of those people like when and they'll do this even now in, in comic book movies. But like when the Batman movie came out with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson, and I was at the height of my comics collecting phase. And in that movie, Batman kills the Joker at the end of the movie. And everybody was all up in arms. How could he do this? Batman would never kill the Joker. Like all the comic book people were losing it. They were like, well, how is he going to you know, the Joker has to come back like they, they don't just meet one time. And and I was one of those people. But then as the years went by and I I became more mature <laughs> an adult i remember thinking you know but this is a different animal this is a movie yes this is not a comic book there is not going to be endless adventures in the movies even if it's implied in your head you're making a movie it has to be a self-contained story you're trying to sell this story and make money it's a self-contained story so yes batman can kill the joker in the movies because there's not going to be 400 batman movies although it feels like that today <laughs> just, just like there, you know there have been you know, hundreds of issues of the batman comic book that's not how movies work so like you have to throw everything at the wall if you're making a movie you know you have to you have to do that but with with wrestling, there really isn't any version of that. It really is. It's like it's the old tired cliche, right? But it's like a soap opera in the sense that the soap opera never ends either. The story's got it. You got to keep it going. No, you're right. Wrestling, it it totally is not like a movie. Um, even if a movie was going to, you knew the movie was going to have a sequel next year, the year after the year year after, it still has to be self-containing. Whereas wrestling just isn't like that. It never has been. Right. So, OK, now I answered the question. Now you have to answer the question. I think you're older than me. So and I've and I've listened to your show for years now. So I think if correct me if I'm wrong, but you you got into it in the late 70s, right? Uh, mid 70s. Mid 70s. OK, let me say something really quick. That was one thing uh, that really I've been getting back into Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And that's something that really impressed me about how Jim Cornette presented Smoky Mountain Wrestling. It's like, OK, this is the beginning of what's supposed to be a never ending story. But he brought in or he got his characters over right away in a new setting. He did. He did an excellent job with that. It's something I noticed you know, while watching rewatching 1992 Smoky Mountain Wrestling again. Um, OK, I'll tell you the story. I am. I'm originally from New York. I'm originally from Jackson Heights. We moved to North Attleboro, Massachusetts when I was 10 years old. My last night living in New York, I have one of my cousins babysitting me while my parents are out, you know, having their goodbye party. And my cousin says to me, all right, do you want to go to bed? Or do you want to stay up and watch wrestling? Well, what's a 10 year old going to say, right? <laughs> 
So I'm, I'm watching wrestling. I'm thinking it's going to be kind of like boxing, but it's instead they're just wrestling. Well, Mighty Igor is wrestling this guy, and Bulldog Brower comes in and starts hitting my Mighty Igor with a chair. And it's like, I, it blew my mind. Like, would Ken Norton grab a chair and attack Muhammad Ali? Of course not. But or, or would, you know, Bud Harrelson grab a chair and start chasing around guys from the Houston Astros? But this was a, a completely different thing. And the next day we're moving. And I say to the movers, you know, hey, are either one of you, one of you guys going to go see, you know, Bulldog Brower against Mighty Igor? And they both like pop. They're like, yeah, did you see what happened last night? It was great. My parents just like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> like a secret language, right? <laughs> right. Was that? And but that that sounds like IWA. Is that what that was? It was IWA. Yeah. Nice. And. So then we we move and, you know, I kind of forget about the wrestling a little bit, except for Saturday morning. If it's like raining and I'm home watching TV, I'm going through the channels. Oh, look, wrestling. And it was just like anything else. You know, when when it went to commercial, I went to look for something else. And my favorite wrestler this is where it starts getting embar really embarrassing. It was a guy named Billy White Wolf. I liked him. And I'd have adults say to me, oh, you like wrestling? Who's your favorite wrestler? Billy White Wolf. Oh, Chief J. Strongbow, you mean? No, who's Chief J. Strongbow? Billy White Wolf, right? So one Saturday, I'm watching wrestling, and it's WWF wrestling. Nothing ever happened, okay? You got five squash matches, and you went home, and in some interviews, right? And it's, it's Billy White Wolf and Jose Gonzalez, the one and only, against uh, Rocky Tamayo and Crusher Blackwell, and the heels dispense of Jose Gonzalez, and they're double-teaming Billy White Wolf. And this guy runs in, Chief J. Strongbow, and saves the day, and I was hooked. Now you've got two Billy White Wolves, another one's named Chief J. Strongbow. <laughs> and I was I just, from that moment on, it was must-see TV. I also want to throw this in. Um, North Attleboro had weekly WWF wrestling every Friday, which I was forbidden to go to. But I wound up going like four or five times. And the first show I ever saw was 1976, my my dream match between the Lou Albano's masked executioners against my favorites, uh, Chief J. Strongbow and Billy White Wolf. But on the undercard of that show was Jose Gonzalez against Bruiser Brody. Oh, wow. And the, that was the era where he where I guess Gonzalez was claiming that Brody was 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 like stiffing him in all their matches. Right. If I have the story correctly, and I'm sure Gonzalez has changed it a couple of times, Brody really roughed him up when Brody first got started there up in Uniondale, uh, Long Island Coliseum, and that's what that's what started. But this was like long after that. And that isn't that also the era where they had started teaming him up with Stan Hansen before they even got to Japan. Yeah, back then, and this was towards the end of this, every wrestler in the WWF had a sporadic tag team partner. So you would see uh, Brody and Hansen get together and team up infrequently. You had like Tor Kamada and Nikolai Volkov, and all the heels naturally got along. And sometimes you would have these mongrel uh, tag teams thrown together on TV or at Jack Witchie's, like, you know, uh, Stan Hansen and Nikolai Volkov teaming up together for one night. You know, it, it's funny. It's the classic example of how you always covet the things that you couldn't have. Like I, I've had the conversation when I had Howard Baumann, I talked about like how I would have killed to be able to hang around in Memphis and Florida in the era that he did and see it with my own eyes and be there live. But, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, all right, 
some of those small WWF shows in the seventies around the Northeast, like they get a bad rap for being dull and boring. And it's just, I'm the sure same they matches. Were. but I would have killed to be able to be at what you just described, like a, like a 1970s, you know, the North Attleboro show with the executioners and Brody and Jose Gonzalez. Like I would have killed to be able to be at something like that. And I loved it. I, I never went and in 81. I started going to the shows in the Boston Garden and I was never bored. Even when there was nothing going on, these guys had a, a headlock going on for two or three minutes. You know, that's the sport to me. It's like, you know, watching a football game and, oh, they run it up the middle for three yards. It's like, OK, that's part of the game. That's part of the excitement. So, right. It, it, it never bothered me. I was the same way I used to, um, especially as a kid. It was just because I was so so invested in it. If you're invested in it, then a headlock to you or what what you'd call a rest hold is, you know, you're you're looking to see how the how your guy's gonna get out of it. You know what I mean? It, it's like it's like watching a pitching duel in baseball where where some people go, Oh, this is so boring. There's no hits happening. You're like, no, wait a minute. I, I you know, I wanna see is this guy gonna how is this how long could this keep going? You know, if you're invested in it then half the work is is done like i used to get so annoyed and i would never do this even as a kid i understood having enough respect for the wrestlers i used to get so annoyed when people would yell boring it would really bother me so much because i would go you know you you paid your money to come see wrestling <laughs> and you're bored because they're wrestling you know <laughs> and, and i understand there's more to it than that i get it that there's guys that are boring and there's matches that were boring and there's guys there, there's certain times where a two minute headlock can be exciting and certain times when it is boring. But as a kid, I just understood enough. Like even then, I remember thinking these guys are working their asses off. They're working hard. You know, I understood even from back then that it was largely a show. And I got that. I did. And I, I just wanted to show them respect for what they were doing. Like, I wouldn't chant that at them. I always found that so disrespectful. I had never heard the boring chant until either late 84 or early 85 at the Boston Garden. And I was a little bit taken aback. And even I had noticed that the wrestling had slowed down a little bit, even since like 82, 83. But I remember being taken aback by it. And my reaction was, okay, you know, I liked Hulk Hogan at the time, but I knew Hulk Hogan had brought in a slew of new fans that hadn't been watching a year ago. And I'm like, you know, this is an unfortunate byproduct of that. Like, these aren't real wrestling fans to me. These are people who, you know, watched on TV a few times, bought a ticket and think this is nonstop action. And it's not. That's just what pro wrestling is. You know, that's interesting. I had never thought of the, about that before, that it could have been and probably was this whole wave of new fans coming in that were, like you said, they weren't, you know, I mean, a wrestling fan's a wrestling fan, but like they, they came to it for different reasons. They hadn't, like you said, they hadn't been watching it before. They didn't fully know what it was like. Yeah, the, the older fans were willing to uh, tolerate more. I don't know if that's the right word, because they just understood this is the nature of what we're watching, you know, this is what it is. I'm not going to sit here when every show you go to is like this. You're not going to sit there like an idiot and just yell boring at them. But if it's one of the first shows you ever went to and you're used to, and all you've seen is Hulk Hogan, you know, for five minutes, then I can understand why you would maybe yell boring sometimes. Yeah. You know, one thing, and I, I've said this before on stick to wrestling, but I, hopefully I have a, a bit of a new audience here. One thing that has only, always blown me away about Vince McMahon 
The WWF was wildly successful in 1983. Wildly successful. I mean, you know, Boston, Philly, New York, Pittsburgh, they were all doing crazy good uh, good revenue. Um, even though Backlund's tenure was getting a little bit old, okay, well, you know, we get a new champion, do whatever you have to do. Vince McMahon took this incredibly successful venture and put a wrecking ball through it. He just said, okay, I'm getting rid of this. I'm not doing this this way anymore. And he replaced it with an entirely new uh, engine. I mean, you know, May 1984 was so different than May 1983. And it worked. I mean, it was such an incredible gamble on his part. And to this day, I'm like, why did he do that? But it worked. I mean, I'm sure he wound up making a lot more money doing it his way, the Hulk Hogan era, than he would have, you know, just going along with what his dad used to do. I mean, yeah, it, was, I, it was such a risk. It was. And I, but I think it was, again, part of that Vince McMahon mentality that we talked about, which is that he knew what he had in mind. He knew what he wanted to do, and nothing was going to change that. I think the minute he sat down to make the deal in 1982, he already knew what he wanted to do. I, I really do. And, and he knew it was going to take a while. He had to get some pieces in place. He had to, you know, there were things that needed to happen first, but I think he already had envisioned that. I mean, for God's sake, even by then, June 82 is when he he bought the company. That was right around the time that Rocky Three came out. So he might have already known about Hulk Hogan. He might have already had him in his mind, even going back that far. So I, I think that um, this was just what he was going to do. And no matter how much success happened regionally in 83 or even getting on USA Network and all that, nothing was going to change his mind. In fact, the USA Network thing was part of the the plan that he had. It was it was it was one of the first pieces in place, but he was going to do what he was going to do. Yeah, um, I mean, Vince bought the company June 82. Uh, Rocky Three was released in theaters Memorial Day weekend 1982. There you go. And uh, there's no question in my mind, Vince McMahon looked at that Thunderlips character in the Rocky movie, and he's like, that's my guy. Right, and I know, you know, there were other people, there, there have been stories, like other people that he had in mind, um, but I think that it, Hogan was always the top choice. I, I really do. I mean, I've heard other people, and I think you've even talked about it on your show. There were like Kerry Von Erich, I think, was on the list, and even Jimmy Snuka because he was right there. Uh, Dusty Rhodes was on the list. I've talked about that on here about how it came down to Hogan and Dusty, in, apparently, in Vince's mind. Shane, Shane told me that, but the deciding factor was physique. You know, he wanted a superhero. He wanted. Uh, uh, you know, somebody that looked like a Greek god, and and that was not Dusty. I mean, Dusty had everything else, but he didn't have that. I think to me, it was Hulk Hogan and everyone, everyone else, uh, Kerry Von Erich, Hacksaw Duggan, etc., were a distant, distant number two, and there was no way Vince would have achieved anywhere near no. he what he would have achieved with anyone but Hulk Hogan. And to me, you can't have Dusty Rhodes go on uh, the David Letterman show, the Johnny Carson show, you know, on Cindy mm -hmm. Lauper's arms during some, uh, you know, award show. You, you know, Hogan was the guy. There was there was really no other choice, and there was no other promoter than Vince, than Vince McMahon. Right. And and like like what you said, that that was the image was very important. I mean, he loved Dusty. He had a soft spot for Dusty going back to the 70s. He saw the magic that Dusty could do. You could even see it in those interview segments when Vince interviews Dusty Rhodes. You could see 
that even he is like smitten by the charisma of Dusty Rhodes. Like it's very genuine. So he had that, but I think at that point he knew he needed like this Adonis and I don't mean Adrian Adonis, like he needed <laughs> an Adonis figure. I know like the ideal thing. And I think you've talked about it too, was he was trying to recreate superstar Billy Graham because what he wanted to do back in the seventies, he was one of the people that was pushing to have superstar Graham turn face and be the babyface superhero champion. His dad would not do that. And it was almost like, well, if I can't do what I wanted to do in 77 or 78, I'm going to recreate it. And obviously superstar Graham himself by that point was not the man he was. So he was not the person for the job, but he wanted to like, he wanted superstar Billy Graham version 2.0 new and improved. And that's what he got. I mean, Hulk Hogan, you know, superstar Billy Graham, people talk about, um, oh, he was so great on interviews. I, I don't think his interviews were great. I'm not saying they were bad, but I'm not. I, they certainly he was never the best in the business. Another thing about Graham, they came out with a DVD series. He was 20 years too late. No, right. he would have been just another guy in 1997. The 70s were perfectly framed for superstar Billy Graham. I don't know where that 20 years thing ever came in. I agree with that. I, I happen to love Graham as a heel promo. I think he was one of the best. I'd like that, but that's difference of opinion. Like I'd put him up there with Flair as one of the best heel promos ever. But um, yeah, I was there when that whole thing happened, when they brought him back into the fold and the 20 years too late thing just felt like such a weird um, phrase to use. Yeah, because it really wasn't accurate. He was perfect for the time that he was in. I mean, if anything, you could say maybe five years too too late, but but that doesn't sound as cool to say as 20 <laughs> years too late. Like, like if he had come along, you know, in the in the classic Hulkamania era, that might have been something. Uh, but but he was pretty much good for the time that he was in. And you, you know what? As a, a non-total non-smart fan back in 1978. I'm thinking to myself, okay, we have the rematches with Bob Backlund. Why not turn superstar Billy Graham into a good guy? And you would have a strong number two baby face behind Bob Backlund. But frankly, my understanding is that Vince Sr. was a little bit sick of superstar Billy Graham's act. Well, he 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 made the promise to Backlund, that famous promise, and he intended to keep it no matter what. And um, Graham is bitter about it to this very day. He, he he just can't let it go. It's actually kind of sad. And even when I talked to him 20 years ago when he was with the company again, he was still talking about it and still talking about what might have been. And I think that's what put him into a depression in the early 80s and changed his whole mindset is he thought in his mind, he really thought, I am going to change the old man's mind. I am going to show him I'm going to run with this ball. And he's going to have no choice. And he's going to say, you know what, Billy, we're going to change the plans. Forget Backlund. He's boring. We're going to stick with you. Like he had this fantasy in his head. He really did. And it didn't happen. And it crushed him. I, I see it two different ways. Number one, I get that as WWF champion, you couldn't have done better with, the, with anyone than superstar Billy Graham. He did everything he was asked to do. He toured Florida. He toured Japan. He flew to Houston, you know, and he drew big wherever he went. So I get it. You know, Graham's like, okay, I did the best job I possibly could do, yet you're demoting me. So I get that. But on the other hand, 
Graham has to look at it like this. You could not have had a better six-year run than the WWF did with Bob Backlund. Right. Not only was he great at the gate, he drew, but he was trouble free. He was, you know, you never had any problems with Bob Backlund. He never argued about finishes. He never argued about money, nothing. And that's really what Vince senior wanted after however many years with Bruno and then with right. superstar Billy Graham. And I think that the one thing, the Backlund years were good business, but of course, as, as we all know, like towards the end, people started to get tired of him. It was maybe a little too long. There was like a contingent of fans that thought it was cool to boo him because he was, you know, this goody two shoes or whatever it was. But one thing I did, I have heard over the years is that even Vince senior, there were times where he, there was some frustration that he wished that Backlund could be not that he wanted him to be like this over the top character, but he wished like, for example, Bruno, Bruno was not over the top. Bruno was, you know, Bruno was Bruno. He was this down to earth guy, but he had this natural charisma there was something about him that connected there was like a fire to his character at times that connected with fans and i think that vince wanted a little bit more of that from backland like he was maybe a little too vanilla because i remember hearing god i can't remember where i heard this it might have even been cody that told me this that his dad told him that like when he would have dusty and superstar there and they would be even when Backlund was champion, sometimes they, you know they, they they had one of their big matches. Backlund was champion by that point, and Vince was sort of like Vince Senior was kind of like talking to Dusty and talking to Superstar and going like, you know, I, could you talk to Bobby and like work with him and show him like because you guys are great, you know how to work the crowd, like you have charisma. Could you maybe show him how to be maybe a little more? colorful and a little more charismatic like apparently there was a little frustration there with that all right not to overplug my show but on stick to wrestling every three months or so we take a look back at what was going on in the wwf uh during that season like coming up we'll talk about what was going on in the wwf in the autumn of 1982 and i Put in some audio of that, of you know the interviews I have from the wrestlers of that time. I've always been a big defender of Bob Backlund's interview style because if in 1982 you're not going to see, uh, you know, Cal Ripken Jr. or Tom <laughs> Seaver, you know, get on get on the TV and start screaming at everybody. So I thought that made sense for Bob Backlund, just to be the everyman, you know. This is how this is how it is, you know, not being a heel. But now I'm watching the audio and Bob, it's embarrassing. He's so bad at the stick. He's just out there mumbling and talking about the moms and dads and grandmas <laughs> out there. It's like, how did this guy, how did they make money with this guy? But at the end of the day, they did. And I, I've always said this, but the the Bob Backlund was great in his role in the WWF, but people, to me, they didn't go to see Bob Backlund. They didn't go to see Ivan Putsky. They didn't go to see Playboy Buddy Rose. They went to see the whole package of WWF wrestling. But with Bob on top of that package, it did extremely well. That is very true. There, there it sometimes gets gets forgotten how hot the business was regionally. Uh, leading up to Hogan, you know, those were the years where they were packing the garden and the felt forum every mm -hmm. month, you know, a 25,000 people total 
you know, and people make jokes and go like, well, that was all the wrestling fans in the whole New York area in one building, but, but they were packing those buildings every month. And, and there's something to be said for that. I mean, it, the business was hot. I mean, it was the same thing in Boston. You know, I mean, every show it was either sold out or it was almost sold out. Like you'd see the far corners of the bleachers would have some empty spots. But, yeah, you know, I mean, Backlund did really well. But at the same time, the first time Hogan was at the Boston Garden, this is January 1984. We get there early because we want to go, you know, get some lunch or whatever. And we get there and there's a big sign that says, you know, wrestling tonight sold out. Hmm. It's like, wow, this is hours beforehand. So this is new. Right. And then we finally get back from Faneuil Hall and we're ready to go into wrestling. There are people outside begging to buy our tickets. So that's something we had never seen in the Backland era. Yeah. And the other thing you can't forget, too, is like they needed somebody that could take it national. Like it's one thing to have hot business regionally. You have to think of somebody that you can take everywhere you could have in the media that could be your face. And, you know, that just wasn't that just wasn't backland. You know, that wasn't the t- you needed somebody that would be like what they call in the corporate world a paradigm shift. And it just wasn't backland. It was, you, you need a generational figure. That was Hulk Hogan without question, no matter what you want to say about him. That was what he was. No, that's a question that I've been asked many times, if not Hogan, who? And the answer is there just wasn't anyone else. Hogan was the guy. And without Hogan, you just don't have that package. There's no WrestleMania, you know, no uh, Saturday night's main event, et cetera. Well, John, I'm very proud of us here because we more or less stuck to wrestling, which I know is is your motto. I got a little comic book stuff in there. I can't help it, but we, we did. I I'm proud. I could, I've gone way over the, the time I usually give people. So I'm going to have all my past guests pissed off at me, but um, this is a good thing because we'll save it for uh, when I have you back, which is definitely going to happen. Well, thank you very much. And the, the term stick to wrestling is almost sarcastic. Um, <laughs> if, if I so would is- say something. But so is shut up and wrestle because all we do is talk. Right? <laughs> good, good point. It would be like, you know, if I said something non-wrestling related, like, you know, Trump sucks, it'd be like stick to wrestling. It's like, right. so that's where the name came from. Right. And and that's funny, too, because that's because then pe- people will also say shut up and wrestle for the same reason. When when wrestlers try to get like critical or vocal about issues it's just whoa shut up and wrestle so yeah exactly so i've just shut up and play football so here you go our shows are like sister podcasts how about that exactly we're we're (laughs) part of a a a non-violent gang over here at the arcadian vanguard there you go i'm proud to be part of the team and i'm and i'm glad that you agreed to do this this has been exactly what i knew it was going to be so it's just these are the kind of conversations i love thank you so much I love your podcast. And one thing I, I, you had uh, Craig Peters on and this guy has the dream job, right? The dream job. He gets to write the wrestling magazines. He gets to hang out in that office. And then I learned that on top of all that, they hung out all day and played Stratomatic baseball. The guy lived in paradise. He did. And he got what I didn't know till I talked to him was he was in the hotel room with Lawler and Kaufman before the Letterman show. I mean, that's like it's almost like unreal. That's like mythical. 
Uh, I, I watched Letterman regularly, and I missed that episode. They were talking about it the next night, and I was kicking myself. But anyway, I know we're you're trying you're trying to wrap up this podcast. I'll let you do that. <laughs> yeah, if I if I had like an intern, he'd be behind you now, like twisting his finger, like giving you the wind up sign. No, but <laughs> but the, you know, but look, I, I I love these conversations. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much, John. Oh, thank you for having me on. I, I had a great time. There you have it, folks, my conversation with fellow Arcadian Vanguard podcaster, John McAdam. I hope you enjoyed that. I loved doing it. John is welcome back anytime, and I I would love, hint, hint, to get to be on John's Stick to Wrestling podcast again, because that was a lot of fun, too. Um, This podcast, really, I just have to say, it's been a dream come true for me, because I get to talk to so many people Uh, that I respect and admire and whose work I enjoy and who I, in some cases I've worked with. And so this is just, this has been a great ride so far. And today's episode was definitely a great example of that. Please keep listening because it's going to keep on going. I've got so many great guests either in the can recorded or uh, working on getting for this show. Next week's episode is going to be one of them. Uh, Someone that another person that I've been privileged to meet through Cauliflower Alley, the longtime Midwestern um, Illinois and Missouri kind of uh, located promoter, Herb Simmons, one of the longest running independent wrestling promoters in the United States. He's been doing it for half a century now, Herb. That's amazing. Mr. Simmons is going to be my guest next week on Shut Up and Wrestle. And beyond that, we've got more. I've got my Pro Wrestling Illustrated podcast co-host, senior writer of Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine, Al Castle, on the way as a future guest. I've got fellow 605 Universe member, another great member of the 605 Pantheon, Kurt Brown, a.k.a. Vandal Drummond. That was, as you can imagine, a very interesting and enlightening conversation. Can't wait to get to that one. Also, someone I reunited with at CAC, who I used to work with at WWE, Chris Goff, who we used to call Big Country. Uh, he was a producer and, and editor uh, and TV writer even at WWE when I worked there. Started as an intern He's got some great stories, and he's going to share them with you in the future weeks of Shut Up and Wrestle. You can find this show on our website, suawpod.com. You can also find it wherever you get your favorite podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Spotify, you name it. Go there and find it. While you're at it, join the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. You can find it on Facebook. Go there and join the conversation. If you want to pick up copies of my book, Blood and Fire, you can go to Amazon and you can get print, digital, or audio versions of the book there. Or like I said at the top of the show, you can order an autographed copy directly from me. Reach out to me at Solomon at yahoo.com. Uh, Also want to say, I hope you're enjoying the wrestling news. Please do check out the wrestling news from Arcadian Vanguard every single morning. It is your 10 to 15 minute update, the best of wrestling journalism. Find out all the the news you need to know from the world of wrestling. I am so proud and glad 
to be a part of the team that makes that possible every day. So please do check it out. Uh, the magazines I write for, I mentioned Inside the Ropes at the top of the show, but I didn't tell you how you could get it. Inside the Ropes magazine is available at insidetheropesmagazine.com. I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? Where else would it be? And Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can get at pwi-online.com. I encourage you to do that as well. If you are looking for me on social media, in addition to Twitter, I can also be reached on Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find my uh, author page on Facebook at Brian Solomon Writer. And you will find any number uh, of, of links to my author web page on the internet on any one of those social media platforms. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So as always, this has been Ryan R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. So long, wrestling fans. Hey!